This is episode five. Take, well, this is the only take we're going to do. Starting to record. Putting my phone in the little thingamajig and start talking. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Fighting Failure. Oscar has an amazing, amazing um, podcast voice. It's about the pitch, not just the stress. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Fighting Failure. There's a pitch as well as a stress. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Fighting Failure. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Fighting Failure, a podcast where we discuss solutions to the climate crisis. So up to now, we have completed six episodes on transportation that Oscar has hosted, and at last we have reached the agriculture section, which I will be hosting. This is episode five, and although the episode may be a bit shorter than some others, it was deemed important enough to take up a full episode. This episode is titled Vegetarianism and Veganism, Friend or Foe. So we will be discussing the pros and cons of becoming a vegetarian or a vegan. I am Hisham, and I will be your host for this episode. My co-hosts are... Sandia Stapleton and Oscar Archibald. So to start, I would like to highlight a few stats which will be important to keep in mind for this episode and perhaps for the entire agriculture section. According to a demographic which I found on a document released by REDD Plus Policymakers, which stands for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation in Developing Countries, etc., etc., released by the UK, UK government in 2010, just about, oh, so it, it highlights basically in, within Africa, Latin America, and subtropical Asia, so all developing nations, uh, it highlights basically the areas of emissions, so deforestation drivers, basically. So we're looking at this statistic, and as always, we'll be in the show notes, and it's, it's sort of a vertical pie chart showing the proportion of drivers of deforestation from which sectors. So, for example, in all of them, uh, agriculture both commercial and local slash subsistence, uh, makes up 70% of deforestation. And this is split pretty evenly between commercial agriculture, which is obviously growing stuff to sell, and subsistence agriculture, which is where people grow things to eat themselves. The other smaller parts are mining, infrastructure, and urban expansion. But if you want to see these stats visually, I know it can be difficult to communicate it over a podcast. It will be in the show notes. The second chart shows the, rather than a sort of percentage, it shows the just raw amount of deforested area and in Latin America this is by far the highest at 45,000 square kilometers per year that's huge uh, what would be useful here is a statistic that tells you that's the size of Spain or something I don't think it's the size of Spain but it definitely sounds really enormous let's um, I'm just gonna do some sort of search uh, list of countries by area let's find one that's the same size uh, scroll down to the bottom okay here we go uh, so 45,000 square kilometers that is the size of, let me find a notable one. That's the size of Denmark. I mean, it, it's sort of closer to Estonia or the Dominican Republic, but Denmark is a more notable. So, um, yeah, the size of Denmark is deforested every year in Latin America. And of that, 30,000 square kilometers, which is the size of Lesotho or Belgium, which is the size of Belgium, uh, is for commercial agriculture. Yeah, that is a huge amount. It's it's much smaller in in Africa. The total amount for commercial agriculture is the size. This is fun. Is the size of Trinidad and Tobago. Maybe not such a well known country, but there you get the idea. Uh, huge huge amounts of land are being deforested every year, uh, and primarily for agricultural purposes. 
And another breakdown of deforestation, which I found in the same document, displayed Indonesia's areas in percentage and land cover. Uh, the link will again be in the show notes, but this was as of 2009. So I have this map of Indonesia and about 32% of land is deforested for commercial agriculture. About 34% of land is deforested for local and subsistence agriculture. Keep that in the recording. Tongue twister. Okay. And so, and the rest, aquaculture accounts for about 3%. And there's very little, there's only about 11% reforestation. And the rest is either open land or mining, so other more minor causes. Get it? Minor causes? And that's, a, that's quite a huge amount. So that's about 66% comes from directly from uh, agriculture. Uh, well, I guess if you count aquaculture, you have about uh, 16... What's aquaculture? I think that's like when you have a kind of bog land. I think that's like the grow, growing of rice, I would, I would assume. Why, why don't you do a quick search on that, Oz? Yeah, so it's actually, uh, I'll just read this off the NOAA, National Ocean Service website. It says, aquaculture is the breeding, raising, and harvesting of fish, self shellfish, and aquatic plants. So it's farming in water. So it could be bogland, but yes, so that, that's interesting to keep in mind. So it's kind of like livestock, but... It's, it's a way of, it's basically agriculture for fish. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Okay, cool. So anyway, moving on. According to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, within the USA, about 10% of greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture, which is quite a huge amount considering we have quite a large population and a lot of people drive cars. So of course, you know, you'd have transportation, many kind of many sectors, you have transportation being a main contributor as well as you know, energy, electricity, and all that. So anyway, but 10% from agriculture. So you'll kind of understand why that is uh, as we get deeper into this agriculture section. But that's quite a large amount, which I just wanted to note down for you guys. Um, And the link will be in the show notes if you want to keep reading that article. And lastly, I found a couple of articles which stated that approximately 80% of global tropical forest is deforested with the, uh, for, the per- for agricultural purposes, which is, which is a huge, huge amount of... The rest is probably for mining and just as the, graph, uh, the previous graphs have stated, kind of urban expansion and infrastructure probably, but that's uh, more minor in those tropical forest areas, uh, areas such as the Amazon. An example of destroying rainforest for urban expansion would be Brasilia, which is uh, Brazil's planned capital. We do discuss uh, the Amazon rainforest deforestation, so uh, just stay tuned with this episode and we'll, we'll kind of discuss reasons for deforestation in the Amazon. Um, but anyway, so now we're going to move on to some benefits of vegetarianism and veganism. So first of all, it directly reduces demand for uh, meat, so that's reducing uh, livestock numbers kind of because the meat industry has less demand so they they'll have less need to supply uh to supply us with meat produce and so that reduces livestock numbers and hence the amounts of amount of methane which i guess specifically cattle and um specifically cattle produce in many ways <laughs> as well as reducing trampling of soil and grass by livestock and preventing some amount of soil erosion caused by livestock uh, anything else, guys? Uh, the stopping the erosion of the soil would also reduce the CO2 lost from the soil. And I guess since most of the world's crop is grown not to feed humans, but also to feed animals, you would then be reducing the agricultural sector, which is 
which is kind of uh, existent to provide feed for animals. Yeah, I'd really like to expand on that. So there's this really cool map. I've just pasted the link in the chat, which shows how the United States uses its land. And you'll see that basically this huge amount, probably just less than a third of the United States, is just for cows to graze. So most of, and, and then you'll see that there's this small bit off to the side of that which is livestock feed and then just above that maybe half or from half to a third of the amount of agriculture for livestock feed is for is for food we actually eat so the point of veganism is not just cutting out these cows and the space they use but actually a huge amount of the food we grow is just grown is just grown for animals and not actually for us and because of thermodynamics Every time you move one step up the food chain, you have less and less energy per amount of sun you put in. So, you know, you start at the bottom with the producers like plants, which take energy straight from the sun. So if you eat a plant, you're getting the biggest amount of energy. But then if you feed the plant to a cow, the cow uses up some of that energy and wastes it. So you actually have to sort of have 10 times as much plant to get the same amount of energy from a cow. Uh, and that's that's why it's, it's so inefficient not just to eat meat. Uh, sorry, it's, that's why it's so efficient to eat meat. Uh, because actually, if you see the food we eat is just a tiny proportion of the US. And if you took all of that cow pasta and livestock feed you could, and reforested it or repurposed it, you could really reduce CO2 emissions by a huge amount. Yeah. Yeah, and also I would just like to point out some of the some of the you know the feed feed grown. Uh, a lot of it is actually soy products and corn products. So is that right? I believe so. I'm I'm pretty sure that was yeah I, I believe so yeah when I was when I was researching I came across that a lot that that soy products I was shocked because I I usually think of soy as you know um, as being used for production of soy milk um, and also soy produce, so like uh, fake meat kind of, which I've, I've been eating quite a bit of because I've transferred to a primarily vegetarian diet, which is another reason why I kind of wanted to do this episode. But um, anyway, so I was shocked to see that a, a, a large amount of feed is actually coming from soy, and I was not so shocked <laughs> to hear that a large amount of feed comes from corn, but um, it's, it's that kind of crop which is used to, to grind down into feed and also that's it feed is not that healthy for the animals which is being given to it doesn't have much nutritional value so it's also kind of putting the animals in a worse situation until they're slaughtering so it's not necessarily it's not necessarily a great thing anyway um moving on but another benefit of uh, transferring to vegetarianism and veganism is that in reducing demand for meat you also reduce the need for meat to be transported the energy to freeze it and the plastic to wrap it so that's a that's a uh, that's a lot of uh, reduce for demand in, in those sectors. Anyway, moving on to the problems now. The top meter of soil worldwide holds about 2,200 billion tons of carbon. That's three times the amount of carbon that's held in the atmosphere in the form of CO2. When the carbon store is in the soil is exposed to air, um, it forms a co covalent bond with the oxygen and becomes the notorious greenhouse gas, CO2. We were talking about before when these cattle are trampling soil, they're, of course, exposing the, the soil. They're ex exposing the carbon soil in the soil to the air, and that's creating the CO2. That's, I was just going to say that that's, that's a significant thing to remember because um, it's tillage, which is the, the, which is the up overturning of soil to, to, to plant crops, I guess. And you'll see it a lot in developing nations. They'll have like a cow 
kind of dragging this these um like these long it's like this tree-sized log and it has these metal spikes on the end and it, it produces rows of um overturned soil and that's also in the u.s people do that with their tractors and in europe and that's that's a, a worldwide problem because of that overturning of the soil and as the co2 is lost from tillage um i guess i mean as as the carbon store is lost from tillage the soil also uh loses fertility so it's not only it's not only kind of forming carbon dioxide into the atmosphere but it's also reducing the soil's capacity to store carbon in the future um, and this makes it even harder to grow plants and crops in the future in future years and that causes that will slowly cause the agriculture industry to to, to decline because it in you know in the coming years it's going to become um, far harder to to plant crops because of the lack of soil fertility and I think that me and Oscar produced a advertisement which stated that what is it? We only have about 60 harvests left until the world's topsoil is unusable. That's definitely something we've created. Yeah. That's a really stark thing. Is that you might say, oh, in 60 years we'll lose soil fertility. But if you say 60 harvests left, that's that's a really powerful statement. And I think Sundia said that actually in our trailer, was there were only 60 harvests left. Yes, I do believe so. Yeah, it's a very powerful thing to say. Uh, and also, Hisha, I was just wondering, when you say it's sort of reducing soil fertility, what, what is behind soil fertility? What creates soil fertility? What, what does soil fertility sort of mean in terms of biology and, and organisms and that sort of thing? As, as, far as, as far as I know, and I'm, I may be wrong, so if I am, you'll, you'll find a correction in the show notes, of course, but there's these microbes held in the soil and they kind of store carbon and that... I think that it's it's the microbes which enable the uh, which enable the Oscar, do you want to do a quick search on this, actually? I'm pretty sure that it's the microbes kind of enable the growth of plants. And as you overturn the soil and the carbon is lost and transferred to carbon dioxide, those microbes die. And I think that, that that's basically what the reduction of soil fertility is. Um, again, if, if I'm wrong about that, I, I might be because that's just off the top of my head. And if I am, you will find the correction in the yeah, show Yeah, I'm just on the Wikipedia page. Uh, and it says... Soil a fertile soil uh, is able to prov supply essential plant nutrients uh, and an absence of toxic substance. And so it says, th this is useful, it's like properties that contribute to soil fertility. And it says depth, drainage, topsoil uh, with soil organic matter, pH, so that's like how acidic or alkaline. Uh, and adequate concentrations of plant nutrients. But here, the last thing is probably what most important is what we're talking about is the presence of a range of microorganisms. So you've got the biodiversity of lots of different microorganisms that are supporting the growth and that are sequestering the carbon and all of that. So you, you were just doing that research and I was wondering, did you find anything about... Um, I was wondering if you found, if you found so what I I was I was doing a little bit of research while I was waiting to get back on and I, I saw that soil microbes move and transform carbon compounds and make nitrogen bioavailable to plants. Yeah, that makes sense. So they, they yeah so in the killing of microbes, what I what I would understand and I'll I will put this link in the show notes or Oscar will I guess we'll put this link in the show notes. But basically, um, it's the microbes which um which kind of transfer nitrogen into the plants and kind of make it. Uh, available to them and plants kind of i think they need nitrogen to grow as far as far as i know and um they they what they do is they kind of store they help to store carbon in the soil and they they also um so when when the carbon is released the the microbes are also killed and that makes it harder for plants to grow so i guess that's kind of to do with soil fertility and so this link will be in the show notes if you want to read more about soil fertility but 
where we'll move on, I guess. So anyway, if you would like to learn more about tillage, stay tuned because if if you want to know more about tillage, we're going to do an episode which will cover tillage in more detail for you guys who have interest in that. But for now, I think we're going to move on to the importing of fruits and veg. As mentioned in our episode on global supply chains, demand often leads to supply. So economics. Um, in this case, the demand for vegetables and fruits that are that are either exotic or hard to grow locally during during winter are shipped to wherever they're in demand. So I don't know, mangoes, strawberries, berries in general. I, I know that like in places like Malawi and what well, even in Delhi sometimes it's hard to find berries. Um, yeah, the worst thing about berries is that they have to be shipped by plane, so they can't be shipped by by tr- by a ship. And they're also very yeah, they're fragile. Yeah. So this, of course, puts tons of emissions out just to transport them. And um, by the way, go back to our episode on global supply chains for more information on this topic because this is it's a very important topic. And so one small point which we which I just wanted to bring up um, in the midst of all of our points, I guess, is fertilizers. So fertilizers, um, so manure and other forms of fertilizers put out large amounts of methane because of decomposition. And they also put out nitrous oxide and CO2, which are all greenhouse gases. And so those are some main contributors of uh, global warming. So I guess that is part of the problem with agriculture is that the use of fertilizer. And so it's I guess it's not then just that cows, that cattle, I guess, um, produce methane by burping, but also through their manure. And so in, in using manure for fertilizer, what is actually happening is that we're putting out more, um, we're putting out more uh, GHGs, greenhouse gases. And so that's, anyway, that's just a small piece of information for you guys. And moving on. Deforestation to create cropland not only releases huge amounts of carbon dioxide and reduces the amount of carbon dioxide that can be absorbed, also without roots holding down the soil and the tree canopy to prevent direct rainfall on the soil, the overturning of soil becomes much easier, leading to soil erosion, which means carbon dioxide loss from the soil and a reduced soil capacity to store carbon dioxide. So this this is desertification. This is the process by which areas which were rich in plants and nutrients turn into deserts because deforestation is, is lacking the stability that tree roots provide to hold the soil together and keep all these nutrients and then it just gets blown away by wind and rainstorms and all of this. That's a really huge problem. And I think just an ex- example of this is in China. One of the, what was one of the most fertile areas in China became a desert with nothing there because it had been over harvested and all the nutrients had been taken out Uh, and actually recently that was reforested in a huge and awesome project but not everywhere has think about back in the golden days you know in history or humanities whatever you learn about like the origins of humanity and where we've all come from and it's it's mesopotamia was one of the best places for growing food but nowadays that's pretty much a desert and so that the, there's stark examples of what can happen if we don't treat our soil properly. And I know that me and Oscar have watched this documentary called uh, "Kiss the Kiss the Kiss the Earth, Kiss the Ground." Is that it? It's called "Kiss the Ground." Kiss the Ground, and it's it's a wonderful documentary on soil erosion and the um, the importance of soil. So if if you want if you want to, um, it's on Netflix and you can find it on some other streaming platforms. So go ahead and watch that. And I think that we're going to discuss more about that documentary in later episodes. I think it's planned for episode Tao. 
And so another thing is that commercial soybean growth is one of the primary contributors to deforestation in the Amazon rainforest. This means that every time you sip some soy milk or have soy products such as tofu, you could be increasing demand for deforestation in the Amazon to produce more soy. So if you're having soy milk, you should look, make sure to look for sustainable alternatives or have maybe have a different milk. Um, I have experimented with veganism myself. Yeah, I've experimented with veganism myself. I did a vegan Monday thing. I ended up stopping it because I just ended up eating the leftovers of the non-vegan food the next day. But when I did, I would drink oat milk. And I, I actually tried all the different vegan milks. I think soy milk's kind of gross. Almond milk is okay, but almonds use a huge amount of water to be cultivated. But oat is a pretty normal grain and that actually tastes really good. It does still use a lot of water, so you've just got to be careful. But I guess dairy cows are not exactly good for the environment anyway. So so that's, that's just important to keep in mind as well, is that soy, not all this vegan alternatives are necessarily incredibly good for the planet. However, it is very difficult to take over beef as, as the worst food for the environment. Yep, and Oscar, you also just touched on um, you also just touched on almonds, and I, I'm pretty sure that in in California there's these huge plantations of almonds, and what actually happens is that they have to provide constant water supply for these almonds to actually grow and to to be able to produce almond milk, and so all these I guess it's it's all of the kind of vegan options for milk to me seem to be actually not that great for the environment. I mean, I guess oat milk isn't that bad. Oat milk isn't that bad. I know rice isn't great for the environment, and there's also rice milk, which tastes pretty good, but... Ooh, coconut milk. What about coconut milk? Coconut milk. I'm pretty... Well, that depends, though, because you can also... There can be coconut plantations, but if it's sustainably grown coconut, I guess that that's yeah. fine, right? I had, like, a period where I had dairy completely cut from my diet, so I was drinking... I was drinking... I'm, I'm pretty sure I was drinking almond milk for a while but i i didn't drink i didn't even drink that much almond milk because i i just didn't drink milk or anything and so if if you're wondering about your um your milk providers whether it's dairy milk or um uh i guess soy milk almond milk rice milk oat milk you can do a quick search if it's a big company and you can find out kind of it's you can usually find out how they how they um source their ingredients so you can you can do that also to kind of prevent using um to prevent buying a product which doesn't source sustainably yes that that's true as well but it's also important to keep in mind that since a lot of these milk replacements are marketed as a more environmentally friendly alternative um, i'm assuming that a lot of these companies that are making Making these vegan milks will be attempting to have sustainably sourced soy or oat or almond or whatever they're putting in their milk. So that that's good to see that there's a consumer push because the demand for vegan milk is a demand for environmentally friendly milk as well. And now moving on to our last kind of what, what we're going to be discussing, I guess, in our problems, problems our last problem is pesticides um, and pesticides alike tilling reduce soil fertility and cause the release of soil carbon and moreover pesticides can directly affect animals that we the animals that we share our planet with however all of this will be covered in detail in our episodes on pesticides coming soon and I'm pretty sure that we're going to cover uh, cover this in our conservation section and kind of how pesticides affect animals so stay tuned anything to add guys no I don't think so I'm not on my end do you have anything Oscar no, not really. I think this has been really very... Um, but if you guys have anything to add, uh, go to fightingfailure.earth and send us a voice message. We'd really love to hear whatever you have to say. Of course. Yep. And if you have any corrections, uh, go to fightingfailure.earth as well and, and uh, write those down and we'll put that in our... We'll edit that and put that in our show notes, okay? Or you can email us directly, contact at fightingfailure.earth. Um, you can tweet if you want to shame us publicly. We're open to all methods of communication. 
Links in the show notes. Okay, and now moving on. So I think now we're going to discuss some solutions. And my one of my favorite kind of solutions is permaculture because it, it there are many... It, well, basically, permaculture is a method of sustainable farming, and it involves many concepts to reduce many of the things mentioned in our problem section and can be used for all sorts of gardens and farms. So whether you, you're growing an, an urban, you know, porch garden uh, or you're growing a garden in, you know, in, in suburban life or a garden in the countryside or if you have a huge farm um permaculture basically always works so it, it's a and if you want to do more research on permaculture please feel free it's a it's really wonderful but now i think we're gonna touch on some common practices so and if you find anything interesting just put it in the show notes i mean message us to, so we can put it in the show notes i guess okay <laughs> anyway <laughs> anyway moving on so so some common practices are the use of certain vegetables in close proximity to others to reduce the need for pesticides. So, for example, chili peppers in close proximity with like vegetables like, I don't know, carrots or whatever else you're growing um, might provide some aphid. Is that how you say it? Aphid? Aphid protection? Yeah, it'll prevent aphid, I think. Aphid. Aphid protection to the peppers as well. So um, this two-way method is commonly used to reduce the need for pesticides to kill pests such as aphids. Yeah, so aphids are these... I just I just wanted to mention aphids are these tiny little pests. I think... Did you just do a search, Oscar? Yeah, it says these small little sap-sucking beetles or something. Yeah, cool. Oscar's our search man. I'm the Google. I'm Uncle Google. <laughs> He's Uncle Google. He has the power. Almighty. We can maybe put a picture of these tiny little disgusting pests. Yeah. So the anyway, aphids are these tiny pests, and um, they eat they eat away at your vegetables, and that's a common that's that's a big that's a big problem for farmers. So I guess that's one of the main reasons why they use pesticides. So basically, what Sandia said was that the the use of um for example chilies in close proximity with other vegetables um prevents aphids from eating away at others uh at at the vegetables is that because the chilies are really spicy or like the oils that the chilies produce i don't actually know i think it's it might be the oils yeah the oils um but i i i don't actually know that specifically so um if you have interest do some research and tell us and we'll put it in the show notes we love getting feedback from you guys it's great yeah, so continuing on, um, the use of renewables and sustainable sources can be used to reduce consumption of electricity and crucial resources such as water. So some examples of sustainable water are natural natural springs, underground water, or a very small amount of water diversion from a river or stream to water crops during the day. An example of sustainable energy sources are solar installations. Also, so another concept is the is the reusal of materials to build the necessary structures for crop harvests and for if if you're kind of doing a lodging, I guess you can also um, reuse like corn stalks, for example, to um, to create accommodation. And this was really cool because I actually at Christmas, um, around Christmas time, just before Christmas this year, um, we did this little road trip in Malawi. And um, I guess on our way back from Nika, we did this stay at at this permaculture lodge, and they were actually sourcing. So to they had like we stayed in Cobb House, and it was made of mud and corn cobs, <laughs> which was very interesting. But it was very effective, and it it actually stayed cool inside, and it was pretty nice. So that's cool. Um, so I guess that sustainable sourcing and reusal of materials is is a crucial part of permaculture. It's like the um the what they're called plastic bricks. The ones where you take a plastic bottle and then... Yeah, it is. 
and they also had a they also had a house with that in the structure um that might have also they might have also had some of those within Cobb House and, and they they would make them like when you'd come if you had any plastic waste in your car you could give it to them and they'd start stuff they'd finish stuffing this these huge heavy dense bricks of plastic and they'd also use that to kind of build their structures and they didn't actually use much plastic um because they they grew all of their they grew all of their um crops using permaculture in their own garden on a mountainside which is very interesting because usually when you think of cropland you think of this flat flat kind of um plain land so um and they did a very good job of it so anyway that's something to keep in mind so another big part of permaculture or another common practice with permaculture is the reasonable coexistence of trees and crops for example trees can assist in crop growth by providing nitrogen which we've talked about is very important for plants to the soil preventing direct rainfall on crops which we talked about again with the sort of amazon canopy leaf fall resulting in natural fertilizer so rather than you know buying fertilizer and more while still leaving enough open space for sunlight to reach the crops beneath this this is a method of agroforestry so what's really interesting about this is that it's sort of how nature intended is that you've got the the symbiotic relationship between trees and plants and lots of different plant organisms all living in the same place coexisting and benefiting each other providing shade providing nitrogen all of this is what makes a healthy ecosystem and our current system of farming where we just have one crop planted on its own is really not as sustainable and that's why we have to use so much fertilizer but if you have this agroforestry and this combination of different Different plants in the same place it is so beneficial and it, it just saves you a lot of money and it's, it's really just quite amazing i can't articulate it another method of agroforestry is the planting of a fruit bearing forest that holds down the soil and prevents soil erosion absorbing co2 and providing the farmer with a sustainable income and buyers with good local fruit and actually i'm me and oscar discovered this form of agroforestry so my dad kind of worked here in Malawi with the other other form of the other form of agroforestry which we just mentioned prior to this but this form of agroforestry we kind of discovered through um Kiss the Ground and we I actually I know the singer um Jason Mraz he's pretty famous and he he's an agroforester he's an, he's an agroforester as well which is very interesting and he has this huge forest of fruits and he grows stuff he grows like lemons and limes and he grows um pears apples I I'm I might be mistaken but like cherries and so he has all these fruits and they come in at different times during um summer so he he has kind of this income throughout the summer so like once um kind of whatever pear season passes then he has income from whatever crop comes next so I found that pretty interesting yeah and I think as, as you said what's important to remember with this sort of agroforestry is it means you can get a harvest all year round rather than tilling a harvest and if your harvest goes wrong and you're just harvesting one type of one type of crop then you're sort of screwed for the next year until the next harvest but if you've got agroforestry you've got a constant stream of different harvests and that's that's really beneficial some of the practices include the protection of minimal waste, uh, compost for fertilize for the, the fertilization of plants and soil, and the use and appreciation of the surrounding natural land to benefit the cropland. Uh, if you want to, guys, want to expand on that, you can. Yeah, I mean, production of minimal waste is a really important one um, because this permaculture again is is all about sustainability. Uh, there's there's the production of minimal waste. It it produces very little. Okay, I'm gonna cut that out. That's too. Fun. What's great because it produces little waste. <laughs> Yeah. And I guess that I guess that it's the same thing. Like, um, you know, I was talking about that they were creating these um, what are they called? Those bricks made of those plastic bricks made of uh, uh, which? In, yeah, eco bricks. That's right. Eco bricks. And they were producing these eco bricks. And it's this idea of of putting out minimal waste and reusing. So that's I that's a very important part of 
That's a very important part of permaculture. I, I have this memory of watching this video of this this woman who who completely lives with minimal waste. Like she she reuses everything she can, uh, or um, or uh, what's it called, or recycles it. And then if she do, if she if she if she cannot absolutely cannot do anything with anything, like with, if there's a piece of plastic that she can't do anything with, she has this like jar and she has this tiny jar for an entire year of plastic. That, that is something we should all aspire to. Hisha, I think you're the one who's done research on alternative tilling forms. So, um, another, so moving on from permaculture, which is, I guess those concepts are basically the main basis of our uh, solutions here, but another, another, um, I guess, solution is to, to tilling in specific is alternative tilling forms. And I know that they exist, and I know that I'm pretty sure my dad was helping to promote some. Um, easy forms which can be done by hand and I know that there's some technologies which can assist in this so if you're a rich farmer and you want to buy this alternate um, tilling equipment you can and it reduces the overturning of soil in the planting of crops but I can't recall any off the top of my head so um, if you know any put put them uh, I guess message us and we'll put them in the show notes and also we'll put a link to a couple in the show notes as well just so that you guys can have that if you want to look into that a little bit more yeah someone is running some kind of I don't know what it is, generator or something, right outside. <laughs> For some reason, we always have to have the washing machine on exactly when I want to record. I'll see if I can do noise reduction on you guys' stuff, and mine as well. We need to stand up to big companies that do not use sustainably sourced ingredients through social media and demand change. It doesn't matter how we do this, through boycotting. I know he shows been going without Nutella. Um, however you do it, we need to stand up. We need to act as a group of consumers to stand up to these heartless companies who are, who are destroying the environment just for their profit. And uh, I guess this will be covered in our article and video club, but it's not always feasible to boycott everything. So you have to kind of wean yourself off. Like maybe, maybe kind of, I guess you can't, entirely boycott some vegetable oil because you you need them to cook but it is still like you can kind of reduce your 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 consumption of them i guess so it's kind of this this minor boycotting of such products can also help even if you're not fully boycotting the way i have been with nutella for the past i think three or four years now i've been boycotting nutella i just don't like it <laughs> congrats us so and finally just keep things local, which is this concept of, I guess, if you can go to a, a local farmer's market or whatever and find uh, locally grown vegetables, locally um, sourced meat, even if, if you're not a vegetarian or vegan. But keep keeping things local also reduces the, the need to transport things, the need to, um, I, I guess, use GMOs to help things, uh, to help your your. Um, plant matter stay well while they transport it so it's all of this I guess keeping things local kind of helps in many ways so that's an easy thing which all of you listeners can do so I recommend that highly if you're not already doing it like many of us are and uh, I think any any more points guys hello Monty what are you doing there Oscar's dog just came Monty hello where are you gone Oscar's beloved little pug Oh, wait, I just wanted to say, Oscar, we should start a hashtag. Oh, yeah. Hashtag keep things local. I'm going to see if that's already on Twitter. Yeah, we should. Keep things local. I mean, why is it giving me a really weird chrome logo? I'm suspicious now. And why do I keep pressing the shift key instead of the enter key? 
Let's go to Twitter and see if there's a hashtag keep things local. If not, we will definitely start it. I'm pretty sure that there's probably already a keep things local hashtag. Oh my God. But... How did I accidentally start WhatsApp? Oh, I see. I didn't like some like Windows 3 instead of shift. Hashtag keep things local. There's no hashtag keep things local, but there's at keep things local. I'm just going to click on no, them. Hashtag keep things local. Okay, so we're going to start a hashtag keep things local. Yep, then. hashtag keep things local. That's that's a super important thing for just all climate related stuff. Where are you going on holiday? Hashtag keep things local. What are you going to eat? Hashtag keep things local. You know, all of that stuff is so important. And now we are going to move on to the article and video club. So first, first things, uh, first things first. We have this, we have this YouTube video which I found by Greenpeace uh, UK. I think Greenpeace UK or Greenpeace UK. Anyway, basically, what what they were talking about is how how to boycott, how to kind of prevent the consumption of palm oil. And I found this pretty interesting. So. So what the it was this very interesting video on on how to reduce how to kind of demand a change in how to demand a change in in the way in the ingredients that these big companies use like palm oil. So basically, palm oil is the most efficient oil, and it gives it, it give giving the most uh giving the most produce in the smallest amount of land. But the problem is that it's grown by cutting down rainforests such as you know um in in Borneo, uh, Indonesia, and so. And that that harms um, ecosystems greatly, and it's 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 devastating also because in in the chopping of trees, I guess palm trees. You might think, oh, it's just replacing trees with more trees. So what's the problem? But palm trees are not very good at producing um, oxygen, and and they're um, however these these rainforests are. So, and I guess it's also about the biodiversity and habitats and the huge diversity of plants in a rainforest. And yeah, so like orangutans can't survive. Orangutans can't survive on it with with in a palm in a palm tree forest and and they also you know they they need the the natural fruit of their habitat so they they can't eat palm the, the palm fruit so it it's it yeah definitely harms the ecosystem so um simply boycotting and attempting to switch generally won't solve the problem even though it will kind of reduce the problem kind of because it, it re- in reducing the demand you reduce the supply um wilmar is the biggest trader of dirty palm oil so an example of something that you could do is to expose brands such as uh such as wilmar to protect the forest so through social media and uh publicly you know m- maybe create a poster and put it up in your school and state which company is sourced from wilmar and in shaming the brand it they it reduces people's their want for that product and then that'll reduce the That'll, um, I guess, severely reduce the demand and then that'll reduce the supply from that specific brand. However, we still need palm oil. So there are ways to sustainably source palm oil in, in kind of more na- natural ways. Um, I guess agroforestry is kind of an option. The planting of like small plantations in some areas. I guess these, it's these. But yeah, I think the biggest problem with palm oil plantations are that they are planted where you've deforested rainforest but if you just plant them in places that haven't been deforested uh, well that, that that sounds wrong as in plant them in places that are open farmland and that, that are not rainforest and they're perfectly plain, fine plant and maybe we could plant them in the place of all the beef the thing there is that palm oils need a certain uh they, they need a certain habitat to to grow but i guess it's the main problem with palm oil is that is that they they deforest 
to kind of grow these huge, huge plantations, whereas they could be growing a couple smaller plantations in more sustainable areas, like in areas which already have fewer number of trees kind of integrating palm trees into that, into the, these small patches of land which they control and they own, and that they could, I guess, sustainably manage in that way, kind of smaller plantations spread out in different areas, um, kind of integrated with the nature rather than just deforesting and creating your very own brand new agricultural habitat. And so just spread it on social media. Um, look for big companies and exploit exploit their failure, exploit their failure to meet our climate goals. Our so and then I also found this um, moving on, I also found this interesting BBC article um, titled Why the Vegan Diet is Not Always Green. Veganism is often uh, is often thought of as much better for the environment, ve veganism and vegetarianism for that matter. But we must, excuse me, I just burped, that's very embarrassing. <laughs> but we must be careful um, with what we replace meat with. Um, on average, veganism is more environmentally friendly than eating meat, but many vegan foods can generate huge amount of emissions. Yeah, like soy. Um, so the article follows, yeah, exactly, exactly like soy. So anyway, the article follows the story of many different vegan fav favorites. So fruit and veg that are transported by air can create more greenhouse gas emissions than poultry. So there's often this divide about, you know, meat is bad and veg is good. And to be fair, pork, beef, it's all those are really bad. But poultry being quite small scale can be it's still still bad for the environment, but it's not nearly as bad as beef. And so then once you're bringing into the factor that you might have poultry sourced locally, but you're having your fruit and veg flown in from the other side of the world, that transportation emissions can actually mean that some fruit and veg, if it's transported from far away, I burped as well, um, will create more, much more greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so we mentioned raspberries and blueberries because they're so delicate, they have to be flown in by plane. That creates an, an out of season, at least, and that creates huge amounts of emissions. Uh, it said in the article that asparagus in the UK creates 5.3 kilograms of carbon dioxide per kilogram of asparagus. So if you had two kilograms of asparagus, you could have the same weight of carbon dioxide as my pug. So think about that next time you eat asparagus in the UK that's been flown from Peru. There's also problems like such as fertilizers that are being used in growing these plants that we've mentioned before, and we'll probably be talking about that a lot in this agriculture section, is the fertilizers that are sort of destroying the soil. They're not sustainable. It's, it's a bit like a drug that you need more and more to achieve the same amount of plant growth. Uh, there's also the big problem of water. So avocados use a huge amount of water. When they're grown in California, they require a bathtub of water every day to sustain their growth. And Oscar, I was wondering, is, is that, is that per, um, I know you kind of summarized the ending of this article, um, and I was wondering if in the, I, so I found the article, but I didn't get to that part of the article because I needed a little bit of assistance. And I was wondering if that's a bathtub of water, is that for each avocado produced, or is that a bathtub of water for each tree? That's a, a bathtub of water for each tree each day in the summer. And you got these avocados in huge plantations. You can also calculate the amount of water required per avocado, but this is for the tree. So, yeah, that's important to clarify. So, anyway, uh, another thing that requires a huge amount of water is nuts. 
Uh, so we, we talk about the almonds as well as the cashews. Uh, these nuts uh, require huge amounts of water to be grown just because of their nature, I guess. And so that's important to bear in mind is that they're often grown in places so don't have huge supplies of water like California, uh, which means that water scarcity can be a problem. And it can also lead to illegal diversion of rivers as well for irrigation because they need to be constantly irrigated. So this is an example of a place where technological solutions, for example, uh, if you're having a soil most, if you're measuring the soil moisture very specifically and only delivering water where it's needed to avoid wastage is definitely a, that's a very exciting prospect uh, to minimize water use. Then there's also, we talked about deforestation of palm oil, but there's also deforestation to plant cocoa for your delicious chocolate, uh, as well as energy needed to both heat rooms for mushrooms and process fake meat. So we eat a lot of fake meat, but that does require energy to create the fake meat as well. So those are just some of the problems with veganism. So it's really important to have a huge disclaimer here. Veganism is almost always better for the environment, but you have to be careful because not all vegan foods are necessarily exemplary, have exemplary environmental records like the ones we talked about. There are plenty, of course, that are really good. Like, I don't know, cabbage is probably pretty good for the environment. I'm just going to have a hazard a guess there. And your carrots and potatoes are probably not having so much CO2 if they're grown locally. Hashtag keep things local. It's, it's a lot of this... This, this sort of thing of if, if you're keeping things low, veganism is not bad. I think it's important. We've, we've talked about a lot of the bad things here, but people who are not vegans can very easily eat a lot of this, a lot of these foods. So just keep it in mind is that don't always think of meat as bad, veg is good. Think of, you know, almonds and avocados require a lot of water. Asparagus needs to be flown overseas. So just think about what you're eating. And, and perhaps it's also, I guess, maybe having a balanced diet. So a kind of mix between maybe poultry and, and veg um, and also all locally sourced could also maybe be better because that's also reducing your need for different types of vegetables, which might have to be flown in, flown in. And it also reduces the need to have more meat on your plate. So I, maybe it's this idea, which you could bring up instead of becoming a vegetarian or a vegan, if you're not up for that, I don't know why you wouldn't be, but if you're not up for that, then maybe kind of try and find this balanced diets, this the in-between range. Um, and that, that could also help a lot. So yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. We're not going vegetarian or vegan because it's not necessarily about completely cutting out these things from your diet, but it's about saying we want to eat less meat and we want to eat less of these not environmentally friendly foods and we want to eat more environmentally foods and lo- locally support source foods because less having these blanket regulations can mean that maybe you have no beef and no chicken, but maybe actually some of the veg you eat is worse than having chicken because it's been flown in and all of this stuff. So rather than having these blanket rules, you should consider about what's better for the environment. And we have beef every now and then just to maintain some iron because that, that's important for diet. And if, if everyone sort of cut down on it like this, it, you don't have to just go vegetarian or go vegan. You should just start, you maybe cut out one meat meal a week and replace it with vegetarian and then move to two. It, that, that, that's really what you've got to think about is it's veganism is not bad. Vegetarian is not bad. But it's not just about that. It's about having a more sustainable food system in general. Yeah. And we've talked about this before. Like, not everything is going to be the silver bullet. Vegetarianism and veganism, are they're not the silver, silver bullet. Not by a long way. They're not going to help solve all your agriculture problems and that kind of thing. So you've got to keep that in mind. I definitely agree with that. I definitely agree with that, Sandia. And I think that, um, I think that if you're just 
a vegetarian or just a vegan, you are you you can say that you're doing your part in helping the planet, and you definitely are. But there's always more that you can do. So maybe maybe it's becoming a vegetarian or a partial vegetarian and getting an electric vehicle. And it's like those those kind of the more you do, um, the the more of these small changes that you make. I guess it's the sum of all these small these small solutions which will make which will kind of form a bigger solution. Veganism is not a get out of environment free card. And I think on that note, we will end this episode. Thank you for listening, guys. Thank you for listening. Links to everything will be in the show notes, and we'll see you next time.